Welcome to episode nine of Mental Health by TalkLink. Here's what's coming up. Women are most likely to develop a mental health problem uh, either during pregnancy or in the first year after having a baby. Um, This is the most likely time in their life that they will develop a mental health problem or relapse. Hi, I'm Rowan, and today we're speaking with Dr. Nicole Hyatt, the Executive Director of the Centre of Perinatal Excellence, or COPE. Dr. Hyatt has a doctorate in clinical psychology and was the former Deputy CEO and National Perinatal Advisor of Beyond Blue. Today's podcast is brought to you by TalkLink, an online directory connecting young Australians with the right mental health practitioner. If you'd like to ask Dr. Hyatt a question, you can do so anonymously at talklink.com.au forward slash podcast. We'll do our best to answer it in a follow-up Q&A session. Okay, let's dive in. Uh, My name is Nicole Hyatt and I'm the founder and executive director of COPE, which stands for the Centre of Perinatal Excellence. And we're Australia's peak body in uh, emotional and mental health around the time of having a baby. Right. And you've got a long history working in perinatal care. Yes, yeah, so look, this has always been a real passionate area of mine. Um, we know that women are most likely to develop a mental health problem uh, either during pregnancy or in the first year after having a baby. Um, this is the most likely time in their life that they will develop a mental health problem or relapse and have a repetitive incident of a mental health problem. So it's a really challenging time and um, this is why it's always been an area that I'm particularly passionate about. Um, and obviously doing my uh, postdoctorate and studies in this area, uh, I then developed the um, work at Beyond Blue, putting in a national program to look at universal routine screening to identify these conditions early and um, started COPE in 2013 to really look at making this a sustainable way of making sure we are identifying and treating conditions early um, through the work of COPE. So there's so much I want to dig into there, but let's start with COPE. Tell us uh, a little bit more about COPE as an organisation. Yeah, so uh, COPE was founded in 2013 and um, our focus is really looking at um, a a whole range of areas. Firstly, for expectant and new parents, we're really committed to making sure, um, as well also those who are trying to become pregnant, we know that um, at each of these stages, it can be an emotional roller coaster. Um, so whether that's experiencing problems around infertility, uh, dealing with grief and loss through um, miscarriages or stillbirth, um, pregnancy and adjusting to pregnancy, managing expectations and um, dealing with mental health problems in pregnancy. Then we have birth, which can also be a very challenging time. Some people don't have the birth experience that they hoped for or wanted. And we know that uh, for a number of people, it can result in birth trauma. And then in the postnatal period, of course, there's another whole range of challenges and adjustments, uh, whether that's, you know, adjusting to breastfeeding, adjusting to life with a crying baby, um, adjusting to managing advice from lots of other people. Uh, All these adjustments do take a toll on emotional and mental health. uh, And that's why our focus for parents is really looking at how can we um, inform and equip uh, parents with information, insights and skills to be aware of and to be able to put things in place to manage these different challenges that often they don't know about or weren't expecting and no one's really talking about in the community. So 
we're really making sure that parents are informed and empowered with information and strategies to combat mental health problems occurring. And of course, if in some cases, mental health problems will exist, um, we wanna make sure that we can direct parents to the most appropriate referral pathways. Um, so that's what, you know, we do have a range of resources. One of those is our Ready to Cope Guide, which is a free uh, weekly email that parents can sign up to at any stage, so both mothers and fathers, expectant mothers and fathers or new parents can sign up to at any stage and receive really helpful tips and advice, which are really pertinent to that stage of the perinatal journey. And we're finding that that's been really valuable in terms of making sure people don't feel alone, that they feel supported, that other people are going through similar experiences, but importantly also um, minimising stress and identifying early signs of anxiety and depression and knowing where to get help should that occur. So the Ready to Cope Guide is um, currently available for expectant and new mums and dads um, and Aboriginal women as well. And we're currently translating it into multiple languages as well. And that's been a really successful resource. Um, we also do a lot for health professionals. So that includes the development of national guidelines. So we know with confidence what treatments are safe and effective. Uh, and also for um, health professionals providing with training and resources um, and also a national pathway map for them, for those at the front line who are looking about where do I refer this pregnant woman who seems to be struggling, but also for the woman or family herself, where can I find good quality help and assistance? So we have a eCOPE directory um, to do that as well. So yeah, we've got a whole range of products and uh, services for different health professionals ranging from expectant new parents through to um, health professionals and mental health providers. Right. I mean, that sounds like an incredible range of resources. So uh, definitely, I think our listeners will find a lot of those helpful and I'll include details in the show notes on them. Let's have a, a deeper dive in on what perinatal depression, anxiety, and, and perhaps even that spectrum of psychosis looks like. Can you describe that in a bit more detail? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So look, we all experience um, stress on a day-to-day basis and we all experience some level of anxiety from time to time when we might be put into a situation where um, you know, our body is having to respond to adapt to that uh, stressor or what we call the flight or fight response. So if you're having to get up and do a speech in front of people and you don't really like public speaking, um, or you're walking up the aisle, you're going to feel nervous because your body is producing all those things, reacting, your increasing heart rate, your pupils are dilating, um, you're, you're probably feeling quite anxious, worrying thoughts. But as soon as that situation has passed, those feelings go away because the stressful event has passed. But anxiety, for example, is different. Anxiety occurs with it, you're having the same sorts of feelings and reactions, but they're not associated with a particular event and often they don't go away on their own. And because if you're experiencing these feelings of anxiety, so things like the racing heart, um, the worrying thoughts, it's natural that you're trying to put a context to why, why am I feeling like this? So sure. what happens is your, your mind starts to try and put a context around those feelings. So you might start to view things as more dangerous or catastrophic than they really are. So um, so then your thinking starts to align with the way that you feel and then that perpetrates even more feelings of anxiety. And you sort of get into this, what we call the cycle of fear or the cycle of worry. And it's very hard to bring that under control. And living with that every day is exhausting. Like anxiety is exhausting. And when you've got the needs of a, a if you're pregnant or have the needs to attend to a young baby, that is even more exhausting. And it can also manifest in the way that you might worry about different things. So, for example, a mother who might be experiencing anxiety might be 
to try and explain why she's feeling this way, she'll start to project um, something worrying. So I'm worried about the baby's health. I'm worried that the baby's um, not breathing properly. I'm worried that something's going to go wrong. So it really then impacts on her ability to function from day to day and have a good quality of life with a new baby because she's going to project those feelings onto trying to explain and often worry about things which in reality aren't really there, but it is explaining her feelings. And when we're looking at all these uh, expectations that the community might project about what parenthood is supposed to be like, that can also fuel those worries that I'm not living up to or I'm not the mother that I should be or I'm not coping like everyone else. Um, and that can also lead to depression. So depression, like anxiety, it feels very different. Rather than feeling anxious and worried and apprehensive all the time, depression leads you to feeling sad or down or losing interest or pleasure or getting pleasure out of anything. But again, it can those feelings can impact on your thoughts. So you start to see everything in a very negative way. Um, so even something quite neutral happening. Uh, so someone, for example, seeing you and notice that you've had a haircut and says you've had a haircut, you might automatically think she doesn't like my hair because the way you feel about yourself, the way you feel about the world is very negative. Right. And this can again perpetuate those negative downward feelings um, and you might start as underestimating your competency as a mother or not being a good mother and your self-worth as a mother. Um, so these are the sort of things and it's really important that people understand um, what is going on behind these feelings. And by doing that, we can give ourselves a lot of insight and tools and strategies to um, really challenge those thoughts, but also do other things to engage us and get us, you know, developing confidence and skills uh, to get these sort of thoughts and feelings under control. But sometimes if they are much more severe and very debilitating, you know, we can get anxiety to the point or depression that you can't even get out of the house. Then we also need to look at other treatments and know what treatments are safe and effective to use during pregnancy or, for example, when breastfeeding. So that's where things like the National Clinical Guidelines that COPE developed for the Commonwealth Government are really important to guide, well, what is safe and effective when it comes to treating these conditions in the perinatal period. Yeah, great. Uh, well, in, in your experience, is the um, depression and anxiety cycle always something that plays off against each other? Or do you have um, case studies where a mother might develop only one or the other? Or do they always live almost in symbiosis in this in this um, cycle of almost paralyzing thought patterns and behavior? Um, no, they can, often they do exist in their own right independently. So um, it is true that in around 50% of cases, so half cases, people do experience anxiety and depression at the same time. Okay. So they've got those worrying thoughts and negative thoughts because even just that worrying all the time, you know, it starts to impact on your mental health. So the anxiety might come first and living with it over time reduces your resources, your quality of life, and then it can start to impact on your depression. So it is very common that anxiety and depression do coexist in about half the cases, but they can also exist in their own entities. Um, so, for example, we know that certain things put people at greater risk of having or developing these conditions in the perinatal period. If you or a family member has experienced anxiety or depression in the past, your risk or likelihood is greater. So it's really important then to be able to um, if you have had a personal experience of anxiety, say in your teens or early 20s, um, and you are now pregnant or having a baby, um, I find it's really helpful to reflect back on when, when I was really struggling last time, what were the early signs? What were the first things for me that I noticed? Was it that I was 
avoiding contact with friends? Was it that I just couldn't get anything done? Was it that I just didn't want to get out of bed? So what were the early signs for me? Because by reflecting and using that experience, we can often then um, look at when you do identify signs later on, if it does reoccur, you can get onto it early. But quite often back then, we had no idea what was going on. So things might have got a lot worse. But if we can use that experience to nip it in the bud early, we can get on top of it earlier as well, rather than waiting until things you know, go downhill, uh, which is much more likely to occur more rapidly when you have the demands of pregnancy or a new baby, as well as dealing with those early symptoms. So the concept of baby blues kind of has this loaded idea behind it that, well, you know, your body's going through so much stress. Your hormones are going all over the place. Biologically, you've been put under enormous amount of stress. It's probably natural for you to have some kind of emotional response and you'll get over it. It's just a matter of time. That's sort of this loaded concept behind baby blues. What's your insight into the need for getting clinical intervention or other sorts of supports to help mothers recover from that? In your experience, is there a natural swing back? And for those who don't swing back, where does it go to and what's the role of that intervention look like? Yeah, so the baby blues is actually a separate condition from anxiety and depression. So the baby blues is a term that is used to describe the rapid change in hormones in the first days after having a a baby. So there is a change in hormones and it can lead women to become very um, emotional and teary. And it's very common, around 80% of women will experience the baby blues. And the baby blues um, does pass on its own with just support and understanding and knowing what's going on is very helpful to be able to say, oh, this is the hormones, this is the baby blues. Um, But typically, as I mentioned, this occurs in the early days after having a baby. So generally at at the latest, eight to 10 days after having a baby, if you're going to experience the baby blues, whereas um, depression and anxiety, particularly depression, for example, would not be diagnosed till generally one month at least, at least one month after having the baby. Um, But of course, it is possible that women are experiencing um, anxiety or depression in pregnancy. We know that one in five women will experience anxiety in pregnancy and in the postnatal period. And we know that up to one in 10 women will experience clinical depression um, in pregnancy. And that increases to one in seven in the postnatal period. So um, the difference with these conditions is that you're experiencing um, a range of symptoms over a period of time. And they begin to really impact on your ability to enjoy life, function from day to day, and do things in the way that you used to. In terms of, well, when is it right, the right time to get help? Um, we always uh, it, you know, encourage people to seek help early. So if you've noticed a change in yourself or someone else, um, really looking at what's going on and um, being aware of the signs and symptoms. So changes in appetite, changes in um, interest or pleasure in things, not wanting to go out, finding things overwhelming. If you're noticing those symptoms and they're occurring over generally two weeks or more, um, it is an indication that you might be experiencing anxiety and or depression. And you can see on the COPE website, you know, the different symptoms and the time period for the different types of disorders that can occur. Um, but it's really about being aware of that. And if you, the faster you identify the signs and symptoms, the faster you can put strategies in place to combat those things or, or help you adjust to it before they start to become more intense um, and start to take over more. Um, so early identification and getting onto it with self-help strategies can be really useful. But for some people who might have a previous history, there will be potentially a genetic predisposition or reason. And for some people, they will require medication, either antenatally and postnatally. 
So um, I think it's really important just to also spell out that um, there are classes of medication for anxiety and depression that can be safely used during pregnancy and in the postnatal period and when breastfeeding. Quite often there is this feeling like I can't take medication, it's going to harm the baby, uh, but there are safe and effective medications. And in fact, going on medication um, is a better impact physically even for the baby rather than not going on medication because we know conditions like anxiety, particularly for example, can release cortisol which can go through the placenta and affect the growth and development of the baby. So in the same way that gestational diabetes can harm the baby, so can anxiety and depression. So it's about identifying getting help and not assuming that taking antidepressants is a bad thing for you or the baby. It's actually going to help manage those symptoms and alleviate the physical effects on you and the growth and development of the baby. So that information is really important because quite often we see people who have been on antidepressants for anxiety and or depression thinking, I've got to come off my medication because I'm pregnant. When in fact, that's the last thing we would refer. We would look at making sure you talk with your health professional and making sure you're on a class of medication called SSRIs, which are safe and the most commonly used medications and they are safe and effective to use in pregnancy. Right, so that was actually going to be my next question, which which class? So SSRI, so selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like um, right. Zoloft, Prozac, that class of, of medication is appropriate during pregnancy in, in your experience? Yes, and the postnatal period. And, you know, if people want to go into have a lot more information, we have fact sheets and resources on uh, the safe use of medications for depression and anxiety on the COPE website. And if you want to go into a lot more detail, you can actually go and read the clinical practice guidelines, which has all the references. So that was a, you know, an expert panel who looked at the safety and use of medications in pregnancy and the postnatal period. And that's been very consistent evidence now for even the, the original guidelines done in 2013. Um, so that's, we've got a lot of uh, data, um, you know, indicating the safety of those medications. So, Dr. Hyde, do we know whether or not the drugs can actually pass on through to the baby or is it completely stopped by the placenta? Um, look, look, there is often um, small amounts of transmission, but as I say, the in- impacts of not treating the mental health condition um, are far greater. So it's always um, when we're looking at medication and the safety of medication, it's always about weighing up the pros and cons. Um, but, you know, thinking that not taking medication is the best solution um, it's not the safest solution, um, both from a physiological point of view in terms of what the body's producing from these conditions, but also just from a mental health point of view. You know, the ability of a mother who is highly anxious or highly depressed to be able to care for and respond to the needs and interact in a positive way with their baby is going to be really impacted if they're really struggling with these conditions. Um, not to mention if the conditions become very severe and the woman might become suicidal, for example, um, or be so depressed that they truly believe that they would be better off and their baby would be better off without them or both of them not being in this world. So, you know, when we look at these impacts of severe depression, anxiety or other mental illnesses, um, more severe mental illnesses, the cost is so small compared to the risks of not providing treatment. In the same way that we accept we're not treating diabetes or not treating asthma, we would never consider thinking it's bad to be on medication. I'm not going to take those medications. I'm worried. Um, we need to always look at the pros and cons and the risk profile and not treating is not always the best solution. 
Yeah, I love the image you've painted there of looking at the trade-offs. I think that's a really level-headed and, and fair way to assess it. And it's a, it's a good reflection, even, even if there were some concerns on the medicine, which is saying there, there is not. But even if there were, you would still go ahead and use it because um, the, the counterpoint, which is the damage you could do, would be just so much greater, right? In fact, we, we had a really interesting conversation with a clinical psychologist, Tara Hicks, about attachment trauma and the ongoing impacts that people have, even from really, really, really young, um, like under three-year-old um, trauma, um, where you know parents and caregivers are not responding in appropriate ways, and it seems very minor, but to, to children, it can have all these ripples that build and become substantial problems later on in their life. Uh, do we have, um, or do you have any more insights into the extent of which um, perinatal depression can impact a child from your experience? Yeah, so um, so we know if a woman is experiencing anxiety or depression, uh, particularly depression, um, her her um, ability to really impact and connect with the baby is really impacted. Um, so the mother-infant attachment is um, delayed or compromised, um, and this can then go on to have long-term impacts on um, the emotional and mental health of that child from infancy uh, through to adolescence, the rates of depression in adolescence and anxiety is higher in those children. Um, and then the likelihood of disability or um, impact of in, in their adulthood is also affected. So we're not just talking about the early impact or just on the mother. These conditions affect the whole family, the infant and the partner. We know if a woman is depressed, the partner is 50% more likely to become depressed also. So this is why we need to identify and treat these conditions so early. Um, the other thing that's really important to note is that when it comes to medication, we recommend that if people have moderate to severe anxiety and depression. So again, another reason to be informed and empowered with knowing what the symptoms are to get onto it early. And then you might not need to use medication uh, because there are other psychological treatments which really look at combating those thoughts and feelings and getting that control back and managing those symptoms which are very, very effective. Um, and if they're deployed in mild to moderate cases, then the likelihood of medication is lower. Um, but also, even if you do have severe medic uh, um, anxiety or depression and do need medication, having those psychological treatments as well can give you the coping strategies uh, to work your way out and again, get control over the disorder. So um, then your likelihood to potentially have to stay on medication in the longer term is lessened because you've got those tools and strategies uh, to keep on top of uh, the feelings and thoughts that go with anxiety and depression. Sure. What are some of those tools? Uh, so things like when I spoke about um, how uh, anxiety and depression can really mess with your thinking. So it can make you, because you're feeling these things, um, you, you start to, the way your brain interprets that starts to mirror or match or put a context around why I'm feeling this way. So as I mentioned, for anxiety, you might see things as more catastrophic or dangerous than they really are. Um, worrying about the baby's health, worrying that if I go out, something terrible will happen. So the tools are about really getting people to look at the evidence. Well, what is the likelihood of that? Is that going to happen? Well, I do this and I don't apply the same logic to this. So why am I applying it to this? So giving people those tools to really challenge their thinking. And by doing that and rationalising those irrational thoughts, it can help them... Um, really then get the confidence to, to do things that they might have avoided because when you have anxious or depressive thoughts, you might start avoiding situations because you're worried something's going to happen or you've got no energy or interest because you're not getting any enjoyment out of it. 
But once you push through that, you give yourself then that the opportunity for the positive experience and you build your confidence and you build um, that sense of control. So it's getting back onto that, um, you know, mix of, and that's why we call it cognitive behavior therapy. It's about yeah, right. um, addressing the way you're thinking and addressing the behaviors to then get control and start getting back on, um, getting back on a roll rather than letting these things stop you and overwhelm and living with these internal thoughts, which are very debilitating. Right. Yeah. So that was actually the, the point that I went to. I, I was wondering whether the cognitive behavior therapy or CBT for our listeners uh, modality, as they're sometimes called, the treatment approach would be the right tool. Uh, it sounds like that's exactly where you want to hit it for, um, for, I think you described it as light to moderate cases, or I guess cases that respond to it. Yep. Yep. So getting onto it. I mean, if you're really severely depressed, um, or anxious, even being able to do those things will be very challenging. So challenging your thinking, um, if, you know, depression, if you've got severe depression, it really, or anxious, you've got racing thoughts or your thoughts are so slowed, it's very hard to even cognitively do those tasks. So in some cases, you might start with medication um, and then just in the same way that, you know, if you had potentially a leg injury, you might start with medication to manage the pain and then start physio to rehabilitate in the same way we might start with medication to get the, um, the brain functioning, getting things back moving, and then be able to engage in the psychological treatment to really um, you know, get that control back and give people the skills uh, to manage those thoughts and feelings and, and behaviours. Let's talk about partners. You've touched on that a couple of times. What do the numbers tell us about how often partners develop um, perinatal depression and anxiety and um, what are your insights into why that happens and, and sort of how that sort of plays out? Yeah, so um, the statistics range a little bit, but between 1 in 10 to 1 in 20 uh, fathers and partners will experience anxiety and depression at this time. Um, I think there's uh, certainly there are some things that we know, like for women, um, having a genetic predisposition uh, can place um, you at greater risk. Um, other things that go on in the perinatal period also impact the likelihood of both men and women developing these conditions. So things like if you've had a, um, if you don't have a supportive relationship with your partner, uh, if you are under have had major life stress events, and I think this is really important. And, in the current COVID environment, for example, where there's a lot of job uncertainty, there's a lot of financial burden, uh, there's a lot of worry and apprehension. Um, but also other times, you know, just having a baby also increases a big feeling of responsibility, new financial obligations, new changes to your life. All these things are going on in the background, which are increasing your stress level as well. Um, things like um, if you have had a traumatic upbringing yourself or experienced abuse, Often when you have a baby, um, either as a mother or a father, um, there's no reference point because you haven't done this before. So it's a natural thing that we reflect on our own upbringing to, to try and learn from that. And how was that for me? Well, what was it really brings to the forefront of your mind about your own childhood experiences? So if you have um, experienced abuse or, um, or um, trauma in your childhood, haven't had a secure upbringing, might have been in an abusive relationship, those things can certainly increase your likelihood. Um, and we know that's true for women, but also likely to be true for partners as well. Uh, being in a family violent relationship, abuse of alcohol and drugs, these are other obviously risk factors. Um, with all the other stresses and changes, often uh, there might be increased substance abuse by partners. 
um, and we know family violence increases in the perinatal period, likely partly because of these additional stresses. Um, in fact, women are most likely to experience their first episode of family violence in pregnancy. Um, so that these are really, I think, reflecting um, the different uh, stresses that are going on within that um, family unit, uh, even before the baby's arrived. And then of course they can exacerbate further in the postnatal period. So there's a lot of change, a lot of dynamics, a lot of stress and pressure, um, a lot of obligations. Um, so this is why it is an increased risk period, both for the mother and the expected or new father or partner. That's interesting that you mention previous trauma can be surfaced by um, a, a pregnancy. Uh, I've, I've heard and I've come across that in a couple of contexts, but it's just such an interesting thing to reflect on that you can potentially have all this trauma that you're carrying around in life that you think you may have gotten over, but in pregnancy, a lot of that will come to the forefront. Mm. Yeah, and I think um, the other thing about when you have a baby is in just reflecting on my own experience, it's one of the times, you know, you might have stopped work for a period of time. It's just you and the baby at home. There's a lot of alone time and a lot of sort of that being still time. Um, so, you know, I can see how in that context, as well as the whole event of having a baby um, and taking you back to a context where, you know, um, you might have had that previous, those previous negative experiences um, and that alone time together can make this a very vulnerable time. Um, also, you might be sleep deprived um, and, you know, also dealing with the way that you feel about yourself and your body, your changing body and all the other things. Um, so those things can also all come together to really increase your level of emotional vulnerability. Um, but if there's other things that have been in the past that haven't really been resolved, uh, they can also surface at this time. So let's talk about how you can screen whether or not you may be going through a period of depression or anxiety. I know COPE's developed some interesting tools. Could you maybe talk about those? Yeah, so um, just like we know that um, we, we routinely screen in pregnancy for gestational diabetes and we screen for blood pressure at every appointment uh, because we know that these, um, there's negative impacts on both the mother and the baby and we need to monitor those. In the same way as we've discussed today, you know, this is an increased or heightened time of um, emotional vulnerability and mental health risk. So the national guideline recommends that every woman is screened to identify both her risk of developing uh, uh, a mental health problem at this time. So that's where we ask things like previous history of mental health problems, previous experience of abuse, access to support, uh, the quality of relationship with your partner, uh, all those things that we know place you at greater risk um, if, if those risk factors are present. Um, and in addition to that, screening also looks at the likelihood that you might be experiencing anxiety or depression symptoms now by asking a number of questions about how you've been feeling over the last seven days using a, a tool for, called the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale. So these are the recommended screening tools and uh, COPE has, traditionally we've put them on pieces of paper and asked people to fill out a questionnaire. Uh, we find that people feel like this is a little bit like doing a test. Um, I'm being tested by the health professional. Um, also, it doesn't often allow privacy when answering those very personal questions about your history or how you're feeling. Um, also, it relies on a very good relationship and rapport with the health professional, whether you're going to disclose those things. Um, we also noticed that when people completed that on a questionnaire um, and handed it back to the midwife or maternal and child health nurse or GP, um, 
often people didn't get any sort of response. It was just like, oh, yeah, that looks okay. Or, you know, it wasn't anything meaningful back for the woman. Um, so uh, just on another level, also research has shown that when uh, scoring these different tools, particularly the Edinburgh scale, for example, uh, because health professionals are trying to add up the scores in a fairly time-limited environment, there was up to 20% error rate, 27% error rate in even adding up the scores. So that could mean sure. uh, people are being missed or incorrectly identified in terms of experiencing symptoms. So we thought there was a much better way to do this. So we've developed iCope, which is a digital screening platform. Uh, and this means that the, the woman can complete a screen um, on an iPad, either in the waiting room, um, or do it now on her phone and be send a secure link to complete it in her own space. And then the, the woman, once she's completed the screen, also she'll be able to do it in, at the moment, we have it available in 12 languages. So rather than, for example, having a, in, a male, which I've seen myself in maternity setting, a male interpreter asking questions in the waiting room in Arabic, for example, about your family violence situation, who's going to want to answer that? openly um, in that context. Whereas doing it in your own language on the iPad, it gives you that privacy, that confidentiality, but also when women complete it, they get a report back, which takes them through, you know, do I, what are my, do I have any risk factors? What can I do about those risk factors? Where can I find out more information about what, what to do about those risk factors? Also, what is my likelihood of having anxiety or depression at the moment? Is that, um, how likely is that? Where can I get more information and where could I get help? So this is the reporting that women get back when they complete the screen and they get it in their own language. Uh, but also being digital, we know that we've got 100% accuracy in the, the scoring and the health professional at the same time also gets a clinical report and guidance about how to have that conversation and about what those scores might mean and whether it's important to recommend that the woman gets a further assessment and, and for potential diagnosis and or referral and treatment. So it's putting a real um, innovative framework, I suppose, around best practice, not only from uh, being able to give women information back and make things much more efficient and effective um, and accurate, um, but also more inclusive in terms of the person being able to do the screening in their own language. Um, but, you know, really importantly, we're, we're actually able to collect data uh, and that de-identified data can be used by the service to say, Gee, over the last 12 months, we have had 38% of our women, pregnant women who have come through, have indicated family violence or have indicated this risk factor or that risk factor. How can this inform our service provision? Um, do we have enough social work, for example, to help with family violence? Whereas at the moment, everyone's just looking at a questionnaire, putting it in the patient notes. There's no real review of the data and how this needs to inform services and treatment provision. Um, and if we can collect this data on a state-by-state -state basis, for example, you could even look at postcodes. At the moment, you know, family violence screening and family violence services are rolled out sort of generically, but we know that it can occur in pockets, in some pockets more than others. And same with other things. So how can we use this data in a really constructive way to inform service provision um, rather than sort of blanket approach? Um, and also looking at, um, you know, the, the language needs or the cultural needs of those services across postcodes. That's another thing that we can learn a lot from the data from. But after $85 million investment in the National Perinatal Depression Initiative, uh, previously, at the end of that, we had no data because everyone's doing pen and paper screening. So that was one of the reasons that was no longer funded uh, because there was no data. 
imagine saying we're going to stop breast screening or we're going to stop cervical cancer screening because we've got no data. We would never do that. But it happens in mental health. Um, and that's why COPE has been really focused on looking at making screening more um, effective, inclusive and sustainable so that we don't have to have these discussions every three years or around the time of an election. It should just be part of the landscape. We would never stop diabetes screening in pregnancy, but mental health can often drop off. Um, and that's why we've really been focused on developing a secure, uh, a secure and sustainable solution that means this is part of the landscape and this is uh, best um, and it should it needs to remain part of the landscape going forward. And can someone do that screen on their own watch? Is there a place where they can go to and, and just jump online and do that screening? Look, the guidelines currently recommend and the screening tools that are recommended are to be done in the presence of a health professional. So um, we always recommend that people, it's, it's really should be part of your maternity care. Uh, we know that the public sector are pretty good at doing it in Australia. Um, however, the private sector are less likely to be doing screening. And this is for a couple of reasons. Often there's, I think, this perception that private patients are less likely to experience mental health problems, which is absolute rubbish. Um, so um, there is an, a, quite often an attitude that we don't need, um, it doesn't exist as much in the private sector. Uh, we also know that those obstetricians who are doing screening are not doing it in line with best practice. So they might be asking a few questions, but they're certainly not doing the thorough screen. So um, for risk factors and mental health conditions, so there's a real push um, to look at uh, making it easier for these obstetricians and the private sector to be doing screening. Um, it's not an area that they're necessarily being trained in. Um, it's not an area that they're always comfortable doing. So this is where the iCOPE screen certainly guides and supports them, but also gives the woman the information back as well. Um, but at the moment, sadly, you know, uh, people are paying more for private care and they're getting less when it comes to mental health in the perinatal period. So I'd encourage if you are going through the private sector to be asking your obstetrician, uh, you haven't asked me about my mental health because this is, as we've discussed today, as important and has impact on your physical and your baby's physical and emotional wellbeing. We know mental health problems in pregnancy also affect birth outcomes, etc. So we wanna make sure that women are well in pregnancy and um, this will set them up in the best position for birth and the postnatal period. You said something interesting just then. You said we know that your, your state of your mental health can affect pregnancy. Uh, and did, did I understand correctly the implication there is birth as well? Was that what you said, birth? Yeah. Yeah. So um, we know that um, we actually did a review by um, PricewaterhouseCoopers a number of years ago looking at the, the costs of untreated anxiety and depression in pregnancy in the postnatal period. Um, and uh, certainly we know that the impacts on birth and birth outcomes are greatly affected. I think at the time it was about $230 million associated with poor birth outcomes resulting from untreated and undiagnosed depression and anxiety in pregnancy. So this is why just like if you had gestational diabetes in pregnancy and it wasn't identified or treated, this is going to affect your birth and your health outcomes and your baby's health outcomes. In the, into the birth and the postnatal period and through the pregnancy. In the same way, mental health impacts on the uh, personal, emotional and economic outcomes. And we had to do that economic analysis as a way to try and convince the government that, you know, um, small amount of money here for prevention saves a lot down the track 
from yeah. um, needing more intensive treatment and intervention. So, you know, that's where it's very important that, you know, an ounce of prevention makes a big difference. And that's why we need to be doing the universal routine screening. But sadly, we really need to lift those rates in the private sector um, because there is a bit of an attitude that it doesn't exist in our cohort. Um, but those women need screening just like anyone else. Yeah, that's very interesting. If you're in a poor state of mental health, are you more likely to experience birth trauma? Is that the conclusion? It might not just be birth trauma, but it might um, impact on your, you know, going through it just from one point of view, you know, going through birth, it can be a marathon. It's, um, it feels like you're going through a marathon. So if you're already um, riddled with anxiety and depression, that in itself, you know, you've got extra resources for the actual birth. And of course, that's going to impact on your birth experience. Um, but also, for example, if you've experienced sexual abuse in the past, that is a risk factor that is asked in the antenatal risk questionnaire because that impacts on your experience of birth. It's a very um, sensitive, vulnerable time when you're going to give birth. You've never done that before. You're in this very vulnerable position. So again, if you've experienced sexual abuse or sexual trauma, uh, for those people particularly, birth can be very, very distressing. So it's important that the health professional has done that risk assessment and be able to take that information with them to look at the emotional needs and sensitivities that are likely to be the, with the woman. Um, and that's just one example. Um, and why we ask those questions, because it does impact on your emotional vulnerability and it does inform the health professional things that they need to be sensitive about when it comes to providing quality care. Mm. That's such a powerful analogy. Birth is like a marathon. And we, we openly as a society accept the concept that you need psychological preparation if you're, if you're going to be a serious athlete. So why would we treat birth any differently? Why would we assume that you, know, you don't need that, that mental health support for something that's just so straining on your body and on relationships as you've mapped out? Yeah, and look, you know, things don't always go well at birth and um, you can only prepare so much. I mean, I think this is another a big area of focus for us at COPE because because you've never, if it's your first baby, you've never been through birth before, first of all. And secondly, even if it is your second baby, every birth is different. You know, the way the baby might be positioned, the way um, your blood pressure is responding, um, you know, so many things can happen that are not in your control. But often we go into birth thinking, um, you know, it's going to be candles and meditation music and I've got my birthing bag there and everything's going to be lovely. Um, but once you get in there, I don't, I don't think people are really prepared for how long it goes on for. I don't think people are really prepared for the level of pain that can come with birth. Um, and I remember a midwife describing to me that it was like a marathon. And that was really helpful because it was like I have to pace myself. Um, and um, it's about being um, and also going into birth, having realistic expectations, um, but also coming to terms with the fact that Things can happen in the birth suite that, uh, um, in the way that the baby might be positioned or whether the, the labour is progressing. Whatever happens, it's never your fault because often um, birth sort of defines the entry into motherhood. And so there's so much build-up. You've been waiting nine months, the baby's coming. There's this whole, it's a big event. Um, and uh, so I think it's often fueled with high expectations and, and imagery that this is going to be a wonderful experience. Um, and people are never really quite prepared for what can happen. Um, so, you know, I think it's really important to, to go into some degree with an open mind. 
um, and you know have strategies. Listen to your, your midwife or your birth educators about tools and strategies. But at the end of the day, you do have to go with the flow to some degree, depending on what unfolds and whatever happens in the birth fleet. Um, I think it's really important to always do it and have a deal with yourself that whatever happens, it is never your fault. Because again, often this is seen as the pinnacle moment of occasion of becoming a mother. There is high expectations. And when things go don't go to plan, there's um, often huge amounts of disappointment, but also guilt and feelings of failure when it's something that you really couldn't do anything about anyway. Um, and then these feelings can certainly carry into the postnatal period. Um, so for example, my first birth was, uh, I had a great first birth, it was long. Um, I probably wasn't expecting it to go on for 18 hours, but now I know that's pretty standard, um, nothing special. Um, I was absolutely exhausted afterwards, um, but it all went well. And um, with my second baby, uh, he was a big baby. He got stuck in the birth canal. It was, uh, we're going to have a seizure. If it doesn't come out in the next couple of pushes, we're going to have to go for a seizure. Finally did come out, come out. So that was a long birth as well. Um, but then my placenta got stuck, for example. So then um, I had to, after having a baby without an epidural, I had to have an epidural and have the placenta manually removed. And again, it's nothing, it wasn't my fault. It was nothing I could do anything about, but it wasn't anything I'd read about or was expecting. So it could have, and depending on my experience, that could have been, uh, you know, something that caused a lot of trauma. And I remember um, even just the smallest thing, uh, the, the obstetrician was amazing. He explained everything he was doing. He was explaining why he was doing things. So I felt, um, you know, that I was we were working together and I was informed and empowered with the information that he gave me about what why we were doing things and what was happening. But afterwards, um, a midwife came up and pressed on my stomach, which was so tender, really hard and said, um, you'll thank me for that later, which was like she was pushing my stomach back in so it wouldn't protrude, you know, um, getting the muscles in. She didn't tell me she was going to do it. It was excruciatingly painful. And that comment, um, you'll thank me for that later, was almost quite of a backhand sort of, and you're so tired and emotional and vulnerable and, it's, um, and coming to terms with that. And that in that context um, was, you know, was quite traumatising and, and it's, it really took me and I was, because I was so vulnerable and disempowered um, and to have that done to me without consent or information, it really took its toll. And that was just a small thing compared to what other people might go through. Um, and I just want to make the other point about breastfeeding. Breastfeeding is another, you know, it's almost like one of the, I call it the pillars of grief. We've got conception, birth and breastfeeding. These things can go really well and be fabulous or they can be absolutely uh, traumatic and really impact on our emotional and mental health. And just that experience of um, afterwards breastfeeding for me, which had gone well with my first and with the second, that had a really positive restorative effect almost for me in terms of, reinforcing that everything was okay and I was doing everything well as a mother whereas if I was struggling with breastfeeding after that birth experience and often that is impacted because it affects the milk supply again it's like I've just failed at birth and now I'm failing at breastfeeding so you can see how this cumulative negative thinking can really start to take hold when you're trying to develop a new identity as a mother and things aren't going well 
and it's undermining your confidence as a person and as a mother, you can see the emotional vulnerability and why the rates of anxiety and depression are likely to be so high. Okay, well, that's it for today. Up next, we hear the real-life story of Josie, a mum of two who has suffered from perinatal depression and anxiety firsthand. We look forward to bringing you this raw life experience. Tune in next week. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review and a comment. We read every single one and it just gives us a huge boost to keep going. It's hard to describe how amazing it is to see feedback coming in. Your reviews and comments also make these conversations more discoverable by the listeners. Thanks so much.